So what I'm going to do now is um, introduce Tofik El-Rasi. We're going to have the remainder of the time with him, which is great. And we're going to open it up to Q&A. I'm trying to find his bio. Here it is. Okay. Tofik El-Rasi is a painter, graphic novelist, and historian. He is an instructor in the painting department at School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where he currently teaches comics. He is the author of Arab in America and the upcoming Baghdad Burning. So thank you, Tofik, for being with us here today and for being so patient. Right. Can you guys hear me? Yes? All right. Uh, well, thank you all for inviting me. Thanks, Suzanne and Troy and everybody else who put it together. Um, I'm going to show you guys some slides from my upcoming book so you guys get a sneak preview. Um, this is just a mock-up of the cover, so this is not the final cover. And a lot of these are kind of rough drafts. And so it's called Baghdad Burning. And I'm going to talk for about maybe 25, 30 minutes, and then we'll leave the rest for question and answer. Because I know a lot of people, when they come to these kinds of events, they have questions or comments that they want to make. So I'm going to make sure to leave room for you guys to do that. Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> so I know that you know the, the events in France are on people's minds. And you know this was obviously a tragedy where the majority of people who were killed were civilians. And that's something, that's so, that's something that we should mourn, right? We should always mourn uh, whenever civilians, innocent people get killed for um, either a bad reason or for no reason. But one of the things that I really want to point out is the kind of selective empathy that people employ, especially when it comes to when Europeans are killed or when uh, non-white peoples of the world are killed. And so you can see the media reaction to this is very marked. And I think this is one of the reasons that stereotypes about uh, Middle Easterners, Muslims, Arabs, and other non-white peoples are perpetuated, because it's a media narrative. Sometimes it's intentional, and sometimes it's unintentional, when humanity is assigned to one group and then denied another group. And that's one of the things that I address, or try to address in my first book. And um, what I'm trying to do in this book, Baghdad Burning, is to try and give you guys, or give the audience, a history of US and Western involvement uh, in the Middle East. And one of the reasons I do that, or I'm trying to do that, not only because I'm a historian, because that's my background, but also because I think it will help people understand the dynamics of the region. One of the things that's promoted very often is that these are the conflicts and the, uh, the, the wars there are a result of age-old grievances and sectarian rivalries or things like that. And I don't really believe that. I think that the primary reason that there's so much upheaval and uh, conflict in the Middle East is because of resources. I think that's primarily what's happening there, is that is a fight and a struggle over resources. And the primary resource of the world today is oil. And so more than 60% of the world's petroleum is in the Gulf. And so that's one of the main reasons that I think there sh that we're seeing so much upheaval. Uh, the Noam Chomsky, the, the political critic, he said that if Iraq's main export was lettuce, we wouldn't be really talking about Iraq. And so think about that for a minute. 
And so those are the kinds of things that I try to discuss in my book. And I'll show you guys slides in, in just a few seconds. I just want to point a couple of things out, though. France now is a reaction to all this, is one of more than five countries that's bombing Syria. Think about that. No real UN resolutions, no declarations of war. So one of five countries, including the United States and Russia, that's bombing Syria. As, and not only that, but one of the worst civil wars that we've seen in recent memory that's resulted in over a quarter million people ha m killed. And a lot of these people have been killed either as an indirect or a direct result of the United States' involvement in that region. Not just the United States, but the West. And so these are also innocent people for the most part. These are also people who should be mourned. These are also people whose lives matter just as much as those people who were killed uh, in France. So that's uh, one thing I really wanted to point out. Another thing is with the upheaval in the, um, the, the since the Tunisian Revolution and then the following subsequent uh, Egyptian Revolution, uh, I know the region has been thrown into chaos and so there's really hope, but there's also a fear that things would spiral out of control like they did in Syria. But I also wanted to point out that the West and the United States has supported these kinds of regimes for generations. Uh, before Hosni Mubarak was overthrown, he was supported strongly by the United States. Everybody knows that Israel gets, uh, is the number one recipient of aid. They get about $3 billion a year in U.S. aid. Uh, number two is Egypt. And that was the case all the way up until now. And so um, one of the ideas is that the United States is this beacon for democracy. And that's kind of a narrative that the White House and other people pr promote. But uh, if you, when I go through these slides, I can illustrate to you just since World War II how the United States and it has involved itself in, these, in this region and has helped support and prop up a lot of the most ruthless dictators. And that's something that's not really discussed or um, acknowledged much in mainstream media. And I also wanted to point out that all of this really started, the current crisis in the Middle East, in 2003 with the, with the disastrous invasion of Iraq. Right? I know Saddam Hussein wasn't very popular, and of course he was an enemy of the United States. But I don't know if many of you guys would remember that in the lead up to the war, the United States did not get United Nations res um, uh, did not get United Nations support, and it was neoconservatives in the George Bush administration that helped promote this, and they had been promoting this for years, going back to the to the early 90s, and this is also kind of a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union, and for a very long time, the United States was a rival with the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, that's when the United States, well, not the United States, but elements in the United States leadership who decided that this would be a good idea to try and secure control of the Middle East. And so throughout the 1990s, they had been pushing, they used to say, to finish off the job in Iraq. And then after 9-11 happened, the opportunity was there. And so what we're seeing now, the rise of groups like ISIS, the attacks in Paris, and all of the bloody violence that we've all um, been exposed to, and all of those innocent people who've lost their lives, all of this is a direct result of the George W. Bush administration's decision to invade uh, Iraq in 2003. And that's something that I wanted to point out, because I think it's not pointed out enough, and I wanted to emphasize it. And so with that, I will show a little bit of 
my work from my upcoming book. Um, and like I said before, this started out as a book about Iraq and uh, the war, but it transformed because events kind of outpaced my work. Whenever I thought I was finished, something else would happen in the Middle East, and so I thought it's very important for me to include it. So it's kind of like this ongoing project. I'm up to 120 some odd pages now, so I'm trying to get it wrapped up so that I can finally get it published so you guys can see it. And so what it's turned into is really um, in history of Western and U.S. involvement in the Middle East, going back to at least World War II, because you know when the Ottoman Empire collapsed, the Europeans really moved into that power vacuum in the Middle East, and that led to the United States becoming the most influential power there. And so this is the one of this is one potential cover. I have a series of covers. This is another potential cover without any of the lettering. And so I'm still deciding. <laughs> it'll be, it'll, it, well, one of these will be either the front cover or the back cover, so they're both going to be there at some point. And so this is not really a traditional graphic novel. I like to call it illustrated history or, or graphic history. Um, and so I was talking to somebody about Scott McCloud earlier. I don't know if you're familiar with his Understanding Comics series. But uh, I'm, I'm taking a cue from him to try and take something that's really complicated and um, sometimes obscure or obfuscated and make it accessible for people. You know, not a lot of people are going to go pick up um, a history of U.S. involvement in the Middle East and read a two, three hundred page book. But if it's illustrated and maybe simplified a little bit in comic book or graphic form, I think it's more accessible. So. Uh, this page is about the United States and their massive NSA uh, surveillance program, which was revealed by Edward Snowden a couple of years ago. And one of the things that came out of that, um, hilariously, was that the United States was spying on foreign governments, including their allies. And so they were listening in on Angela Merkel's cell phone, her personal cell phone. Angela Merkel is the prime minister of Germany. And of course, when she found out about that, she was outraged, right? Um, uh, this is about the, this page in particular is about the United States support of the Afghan Mujahideen in the 1980s and uh, the Iran-Contra affair. Oliver North was a high-ranking official in the Reagan administration, and they illegally gave weapons and sold weapons to Iran, and they sent billions of dollars worth of weapons to uh, Afghanistan. And as a direct result of this, the Soviet Union was brought down and it helped lead to the rise of a group like Al-Qaeda. One of the people who was participating in the war against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan was Osama bin Laden. And so yesterday's friend is today's enemy, right? It's like George Orwell's book, 1984, right? This is one of the things that happens in war and crisis is that uh, there's something in 1984 called the memory hole. And so a lot of the technicians and uh, information ministers, whenever they want the people to forget something, they cut it out of the newspapers and they throw it down the memory hole. And so one of the motivations for making a work like this is to save these, these things from the memory hole. Um, oh, and by the way, this down here, this is a quote from Ronald Reagan at the time. He called the Contras, who were fighting the revolution in Nicaragua at the time, he called them the moral 
equivalent of our founding fathers. And if you knew the tactics and the things that the Contras carried out, the massacres and the, uh, the, 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 the Contras were not uh, friendly people. And of course, I mentioned oil. Oil is a big part of the book, and so I try to talk a little bit about petroleum, why it's important. Uh, people underestimate the importance of it. For example, there are about a trillion barrels of oil in the ground today, accessible in the world. And I know the price of oil is down right now, but not too long ago, it was $100 a barrel. And so you could do the math. If there's a trillion barrels of oil that, that are accessible in the ground today, and if it's going for $100 a barrel, potentially, you know, all this talk about green technology and electric cars, well, that's going to be a big stumbling block because major corporations are more interested in making huge profits. And that's not to mention um, the inaccessible oil. I know they're exploring around the Arctic region now, and with new technologies, I'm sure they'll find a way to exploit and find other sources of petroleum. And I mentioned 1984. Um, this was probably the biggest motivation for me to go to, to write this book. George Orwell is one of my favorite writers. And he was very prescient when he wrote 1984 in the 1940s about the upcoming Cold War. Um, I think, if anything, I'd like people to walk away from <coughs> my work understanding that uh, political leaders, whether they're national, uh, whether they hold state power, or if they're subnational groups, like insurgent groups, for example, political leaders are mostly interested in one thing, and that's acquiring and have and keeping political power. And they use uh, people's frustrations, people's prejudices, and pe and historical grievances as a way to pursue and achieve political power, right? And whoever controls resources controls, controls really everything, okay? Um, the world is industrializing very, very fast right now. China, for example, went from being a poor country into, in the past few years, being the second largest economy in the world, right behind the United States. And the projections are that at some point it's going to overtake the United States. And it can't do that if it doesn't have access to petroleum, it doesn't have access to resources, right? I just read not too long ago that in the past few years, China used more concrete than the United States used in the whole 20th century. That's how fast things are moving, right? So whenever there's this talk about religious conflict and rivalries, I just want people to put those things into perspective. And that's kind of what George Orwell tried to do. Political ideology, religion, all of those things are used in the service of usually some pursuit some political pursuit. And that's why I'm trying to do my best to uh, highlight the history of this kind of thing so that people can at least, if you're going to support something or not support something, well, at least do it based on information as opposed to, you know, a snippet or a talking head on television. And so I'll skip that. Yeah, this is another page about oil. And this is one last section that, uh, and 
when I said it transformed from just an uh, involvement of the United States in Iraq and then the Middle East, I mentioned the Iran-Contra affair. And one of the things about the Iran-Contra affair is that one little known piece of American history is that uh, elements in the American government helped spark the crack epidemic in the 19, late 1980s and 1990s in the United States when they allowed uh, profits from drug sales here in the United States to be funneled back to the Nicara Nicaraguan Contras who were fighting against the revolution in Nicaragua that the United States was opposed to. This has recently come to light by the work of a very important journalist, and um, uh, Dan Gary Webb. And I have here a quote from Maxine Waters, who is a congresswoman from uh, California, and she says, that this incident in American history is one of the worst official abuses in our history. That is a quote from her. And so, again, when they're talking about these idealistic motivations for the things that are happening in the world, you have to get, put it in perspective. Understand who's at the levers of power. Why are they doing the things that they're doing? And what are the true motivations behind all this? I think that I, you know, this is something that is often overlooked because uh, the media and the narratives that are promoted are more interested in kind of this sensationalism, this sensationalistic um, lowest common denominator discussion about these kinds of motivations. And it's a little boring, to be honest with you, when you talk about resources and oil and economics. But that's my opinion, and that's why I'm trying to promote the at least uh, a wider knowledge of not just the history, but also the contemporary motivations of um, not just the United States government, but Western governments in general, who are mostly responsible for the disastrous uh, wars and conflicts that are raging now in the Middle East. So with that, I will leave it open for any question and uh, comments or question and answer. So I have a microphone, and uh, so if you have questions, raise your hand, and I'll pass it. Hi. I believe this is such a great source of education, and I heard uh, many things that I didn't know about. And one thing is, unfortunately, many people are using media as one of their source of education. As a student, in your opinion, what can we do as educating people the truth? Mm, as educators? Yeah. That is a really good question. Um, and the, I think exposing students to, to, I hate to use the word truth, right? I know because it's, it's not supposed to be subjective, but in sometimes when you use it, it depends who's using that word. I think uh, critical thinking is probably the most important thing to promote in a classroom. I mean, I know I talked a lot about the U.S. and Middle East involvement in, in the Middle East. The reason I'm doing that is because the narrative, the mainstream narrative, and you mentioned the news, is so lopsided in the other direction. And Layla mentioned this in her presentation about presenting the other side. Well, you know, sometimes when it's so lopsided, it's kind of, you question, why should I even bother with the other side? But at the same time, I think, as educators, it's important to encourage critical thinking by giving students information that they otherwise would not have access to. And 
you know, it's not about indoctrinating anyone. It's about giving students information, maybe information that you're not going to see from the news. And then go ahead and make your decision. Who do you support? And why do you support the things that you support? Because I, I think I understand where you're coming from. More often than not, you hear people just sort of parroting things that really don't make any sense. And so that's my, you know, my approach is to encourage critical thinking, to try and bring students to the well. And if they want to drink the water, then it's their choice. Thank you for your presentation. That was great. Mm -hmm. um, if you can just tell the audience a little bit about how you came about um, writing um, your mm -hmm. first graphic novel, Arab uh, in America, and mm -hmm. then um, you know, we, we touched on why you've chosen this outlet, but just as an artist yourself, a little bit about how you developed as a graphic novelist. Perhaps there's some students in the audience that might be interested in yeah. honing in on some of their skills. What are some tips that you might give them? Um, I think if you like to draw or, or paint, you should always draw in paint. Right? One of the things that happens often is that I know sometimes people's lives get in the way and obligations or things like that. But that's the reason why a lot of people stop doing or, or having creative pursuits. And um, I understand life happens, but the best thing I can do is encourage you, if you're an artist or if you're a writer or a musician, to keep practicing your arts keep developing because you only get better uh, with practice and, it, and if, it's your, it, if, it, if it is your creative outlet you should continue uh, pursuing it and you know it for me I've always been uh, you know kind of a reader and a, and, a, and a drawer and so comics and graphic novels were a natural fit for me uh, and you know, it's not necessarily you have to pursue comics, any kind of real creative endeavor. One of the things that successful artists, the story that, um, one of the reasons they cite, one of the reasons I can cite is persistence. And so, you know, I drew a lot and submitted a lot before finally I was able to get my book in print. And that's the key, I think. Don't stop working. Don't stop drawing or painting or practicing your art. What do you think would happen if the U.S. were to pull off uh, all economic, uh, they would just stop giving Israel money? What do you think would happen? Okay, the question was about, you guys heard the question, right? Uh, the qu well, I think that the first Bush administration, George H.W. Bush, his father, he was the, one of the only presidents, I think the only president actually, who threatened to uh, stop funding to Israel because I don't remember exactly the reason, but there was a dispute between the Israeli government and the American government. But the backlash was so severe that no president since has even thought about doing that. Uh, the reason is because y Israel is able to settle the West Bank and, the, and up until a few years ago, 10 years ago, the Gaza Strip until they pulled out. And one of the reasons they're able to do that is because of that crucial funding. A lot of it is military aid. But, you know, $3 billion, some of the money they're able to use in exchange from their own personal economy to fund the settlements. And the settlements are these lush, beautiful, suburban uh, neighborhoods. You know, if you were dropped in the middle of one of them, you'd probably think you were in the suburb of Chicago or something. 
And they have swimming pools that are filled with water, while in the, in the Palestinian West Bank and the Gaza Strip, there's a water crisis. And a lot of this comes because uh, of the Western support, which is incredibly crucial. And it's not just financial aid, but it's diplomatic shielding in places like the United Nations. There are hundreds of resolutions where the no vote in the Security Council was usually the United States, and it was you know, against Israel for one reason or another. And so it's not just financial support, but it's also, it's also diplomatic support. What would happen if the United States stopped? That is a difficult question to answer. I don't know. I think that it would compel the Israelis to negotiate more. One of the things that really people don't think about is that why should Israel negotiate with anyone? I mean, think about that for a minute. They have the most powerful military in the Middle East. They're totally unchallenged. They have the support of the most powerful economy on earth. They have total control of the, of the Palestinian territories. Why should they sit down and talk to anybody? The only reason that there's this push from the Obama administration, it's mostly symbolic because people see pictures and videos on TV and they're upset by it. That's really the way it's going to go until there's a real compelling reason for the Israelis to negotiate. And I think, you know, maybe uh, doing something with the aid is one potential avenue, but I really doubt that that would happen. Other questions? So thank you again for your lectures. Very informative. You're welcome. Um, I might ask you something that might be too much to say, but uh, what is your thought about uh, what's happening in Syria and what is your prediction? And I don't know if you have any, but just I want to throw it out there. Yeah, that is a big question. The, the Syrian, I mean, this, the war has been raging there for over three years now, and there's over a cordon, quarter of a million people killed, millions more displaced internally. And one of the worst refugee crises since World War II, I mean, and this is another tragedy as a result of the events in, in France, is that a lot of countries now are going to close their borders to um, these displaced people who really have nowhere else to go, this desperate population. Um, it's a hard question to answer because it's so chaotic right now. I mentioned that there's over five nations, more than five nations involved, and they're each supporting a different faction. It seems like there is a push by some people to try and foster this Sunni-Shia divide in the Middle East with Iranian support on one side and the Gulf states support on the other side. Um, and with Russia, I think there are so many contending uh, influences and interests that it's really hard to predict what would happen. But it's, it reminds me a lot of Lebanon, where there was all of these different factions that got support from different countries from all over the world. Um, I don't think that the civil war is going to end anytime soon. And I guess you could use Lebanon as kind of an example that it went on for over 10 years until finally it was a stalemated. Then people had to just sit down and find a way to negotiate some kind of resolution, even if it's an uneasy resolution then I think that's eventually where it's going to go. I know that in Lebanon they have the confessional system where the power is allocated and divided among uh, religious groups and sec sec different sects. That might be where it ends up, but it's so impossible to predict because there's so much at stake. And the war is really so brutal where all sides, most sides are so far from willing to compromise at this point 
I fear that it must get worse before it gets better. Yeah. How's it going? Um, uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, the 2003 Iraq invasion. Um, I just kind of wanted to get your opinion. Uh, do you think that the uh, 2011 Arab Spring would have happened as a result of us not getting involved, or if it would have been bloodier if it were to happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a good question. I've heard and I've read some people make the argument that the toppling of Saddam Hussein either inadvertently or uh, on purpose contributed to the, the Arab Spring or the Arab revolutions. It's hard to say one way or the other, but I, I do know that um, the removal of Saddam Hussein and the ease of which that a foreign country like the United States could just march his army into the Arab world did, I think it contributed to a sense of frustration and desperation among maybe ordinary people in the, in the Middle East. But I think the uh, revolutions that started in Tunisia and then spread to Egypt and other places was really about corruption, um, state brutality, and uh, uneven, an uneven distribution of resources. A lot of these countries have majority young populations. Like most of the people in Egypt and other countries are under the age of 30. And a lot of them are educated, highly educated. And I know a lot of times people talked about technology and Facebook and Twitter as one of the reasons for all this. I think that was part of it. And I think one of the reasons is for the first time, uh, young people in, in Cairo or Tunisia were able to compare their lives because of mass media, telecommunications, and even cheap, cheapness of travel. They were able to compare their lives to their counterparts in Europe and the United States and ask why. I have a computer science degree. I'm educated. How come a young person in Denmark is able to ha go to school and have a relatively happy life while I'm still living at home with my parents and can't find a job? And I've had the same leader since I was born. I'm 30 years old. He's the same president. It doesn't make any sense. So I think it was frustration that was building over many, many years that eventually uh, resulted in, in those things. I think the overthrow of Saddam Hussein did contribute to it in a way because um, I think inadvertently it showed the weakness of uh, these regimes because fundamentally they are weak uh, because you know uh, if they don't have the support of foreign regimes like Syria and Russia or Israel and the United States, it's difficult for them to, to challenge uh, a, a mass mobilization or a revolution. That's why it was crucial when the United States pulled support from Hosni Mubarak, they basically hung him out to dry. They didn't have to. They could have kept him in power like the Russians are doing in Syria now, but they chose not to do it. Other questions? So being Palestinian, I can't help but ask, where do you see the Palestinian issue? Um, it seems like every Ten years or so, we see something new happening, just a little. So, where do you see the Palestinian issue moving to? Yeah, you keep asking me difficult questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question, though. 
The, the Palestinian issue is a, is, a, is a difficult one because the population in uh, Palestinian, Palestine slash Israel is about even. So there's about 15 million Israeli Jews and about 15 million Palestinian Arabs, not to mention a lot of immigrant workers who come from parts, uh, all different parts of the world. And a lot of people are saying, I love when they say Israel is having a demographic crisis. Right, like uh, Palestinian babies are a crisis somehow. <laughs> um, the reason they're saying that is because the uh, Israeli government is going to be forced to choose between apartheid-style government or, you know, ceding some territories to the Palestinians. I don't really know what the plan or what they're going to do, but I do know that the whole concept of the two-state solution is increasingly. Uh, no, I don't think it's much of a it can be a reality any longer because of the nature of the Israeli population. And actually, I guess maybe something kind of optimistic. I know a lot of the things I've been saying is pessimist. But maybe something optimistic is that more and more mainstream scholars and people are talking openly about the possibility of a, of a, a binational secular state. And that, a few years ago, was considered uh, out of bounds. And so maybe that will gain more traction. So what I mean is the idea that the people who live there whether they're Jewish or Muslim or Palestinian or whatever, that they would live in a secular country under a secular government with equal rights for everybody. It's shocking, isn't it, right? Uh, well, that's the idea. And so that idea is gaining traction, and I think we're actually reaching a critical point relatively soon that it's going to be either that or you know, disastrous choices. And that's one of the things about the Middle East right now, the contemporary Middle East. Um, a lot of these countries are facing these choices where they're either going to have to sit down and form solutions or stare into the abyss of more violence and war. And I think that the choice is coming soon for a lot of these places, including Israel, Palestine, and Syria. And so only time will tell what the result is going to be. Any more questions? Any final questions? Uh, I'd like to ask one of if there's a student that has a question, I'll give mine up for a student. So, Tofiq, and we'll have this be the final question. Okay. I want to give students an opportunity to go and purchase a book if they can today. And like I said, Tofiq is going to be um, signing them. I brought my copy so that he can sign it for me. Um, my, my question to Tawfiq is about, um, did you have an intended audience um, when you wrote Arab in America or um, ba Baghdad Burning? And the reason why I ask is just today, right, I learned so much from mm -hmm. you in terms of the historical perspective and background. And like you brought up, right, it's one that we sometimes don't hear in our classrooms. You know, when I was growing up as a student, a different perspective, not that lopsided popular media perspective. So did you have um, an intended audience? And I also want to say, for those of you that aren't readers, and I think Tofiq pointed this out, um, I, I learn by listening, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, um, I'm an auditory learner. Um, but reading his book and reading Layla's book, because they're graphic novels, so much information embedded here in um, such an easy read. Um, so I encourage you to take a look at that. But did you yeah. have an intended audience? Because I learned a lot yeah. by, by reading this. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted people who are interested in, in the Middle East or people who are interested in Arab uh, identity 
to read it. That's what I was thinking about. I wasn't looking, I was not thinking about experts or PhDs. I was thinking about, uh, I wanted a person who wanted to know more, who would see the title, pick it up, take it home, read it, and then spread the words. Talk to, you know, show their roommate or their loved ones. Look, I just read this, this is interesting. And also to try and, you know, just provide an alternative point of view that, like I said before, sometimes is lacking in the mainstream narrative. Fantastic. How about a round of applause? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>